Lovely to be back in Tennessee. I was in New York a couple days ago. Big difference between New York City and Tennessee. And uh, since we lived here in Tennessee for 19 years, it's nice to have the people in the airport call me sweetheart. And uh, it's not what they called me in LaGuardia. So, uh, but I uh, have appreciated your, your pastor for, for many, many years. He's been, uh, I always call him one of those value-added friends. I hope you have some of those people that if you get a text from them or an email from them or a phone call, you go there first because you know it's going to be good. It may not be easy, but it's going to be good because you know their hearts and uh, you love them. They, they love you. And a uh, nice bust of you there, by the way, Michael. That's pretty good. <laughs> I grew up in Florida, actually. And um, uh, Central Florida, somewhere between Tampa and Orlando. And went to the University of South Florida, as uh, Dr. Easley mentioned. Uh, my dream was to go into space. I wanted to be an astronaut. Growing up in Florida, that's uh, not unlikely because we grew up watching uh, the rockets go up. We'd run out in the schoolyard and see the flames, and I wanted to do that. But I wanted to take the, the route. I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And so I was preparing for that in, uh, in high school. I, my three, three passions were uh, basketball, mathematics, and science, and girls. And, um, uh, but uh, just before I went to the university, I was invited to this gathering of uh, high school students. And the only reason I went is because they were having free pizza. So I went and uh, got some good pizza because I like good pizza, I like bad pizza, I like pizza. And, uh, but the fellow that was there, there was only about 20 of us, he um, talked about Jesus Christ in ways that I'd never heard. I was not very religious at the time, did not really care. But when he talked about Jesus Christ dying for me and what that meant, I sat there and knew I was different. And I hadn't gotten over it yet. Still went and finished the program, but I knew that by the time I graduated, I had a higher calling than, than being an astronaut. But you know, many times uh, when we come to Jesus Christ, it's the, the path after that that is the challenge. What does it mean to, to be a Christian? Many of you sitting here are probably not even sure that you know Jesus Christ, that you're in, in the body. Or you're trying to figure out, what does it mean to, to be a Christian? And you maybe have a list of things like I did. You know, What it means now is that, well, I don't do some of the things I did. My life became sin management, you know, my Christian life. Uh, I do some things I didn't do before. I go to church, I read the Bible, I pray, those kinds of things. We expand that as you get a little bit older to make sure that you have the right views on moral issues, social issues, political issues. And there are people that feel called of God to make sure that you're fitting in in all those areas. And if not, they will talk to you about it. But I began to realize in my own life, and I'll be honest, still struggle in ways, that many times I, I, I'm still trying to earn God's favor. It's almost like every morning God is there, okay, all right, I'll see if you're fit. Are you matching up? You know, am I going to give you a good day or a bad day? What are you thinking about? What have you been doing? Where's your sin? Where's not your sin? All those things in life that are just kind of overwhelming. 
It reminds me of uh, at the beginning of Saving Private Ryan when an aging Matt Damon, aging, aging James Ryan is talking to the headstones of those who died for him to pull him out of the war. And he's weeping, Did I, was I good enough? Did I do it? Was I good enough? Because if you remember at the end of the movie, the last thing that the captain, who looks like Tom Hanks, said to, to Matt Damon as he was dying, and realizing all these men had died so that he didn't have to fight anymore, the last words to him were, earn this. And it just ruined the movie for me to think, to think that you've got to spend the rest of your life trying to earn, earn the death of all these individuals. And I am so grateful to God that Jesus did not hang on the cross and say, earn this. All right, everybody, earn this. We can't. We can't. It's all of grace. We're not worthy, and that's okay. It's all of grace. And getting that under our skin is so hard. Living out is even more, more difficult. So we say, well, I want to follow Jesus, and we're not even sure what Jesus we want to follow. I, I grew up in a tradition where pictures of Jesus everywhere, who you know, had that beautiful Lady Claire all hair, little halo, skipping along the Sea of Galilee, singing songs to himself, victory in me. What, what a friend they have in me. How great I art. But that's not the Jesus that we follow. Because if there's anything that Jesus said over and over again was, follow me. Follow me. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're talking about a walk of wisdom, right? And it starts with the one who is wisdom. And I guarantee you that if you decide to truly follow Jesus, you will look and be different, not only from the world, but even from the prevailing Christian culture. And are you up to it? Are you willing to make that kind of commitment to Jesus Christ? For many, Jesus is just part of the furniture of your life. It's just something that you do. And he will not allow that. When he said to seek first my kingdom, he didn't tell us to seek anything second. To seek him first is to seek him only. Challenging, challenging words. Why, why does Jesus captivate, captivate me? Why does he captivate the world so much? And I think it's because, of course, how he lived, the things he said, and the people that hung around him. And if that's true, then what he said and what he did, we should somehow emulate, and that somehow should be, in many ways, compelling to the people around us. Many of you have read... Some books by Phil Yancey. The Jesus I Never Knew is a fabulous book. But he repeats a story in his next book, which is called What's So Amazing About Grace. Many of you have read it. If you hadn't, you should. The core of Christianity. And he describes the story of a, of a social worker that was telling him this. And this is what he writes. He says, the social worker, a prostitute came to me Stress, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. 
I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked her if she'd ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. And you know, the reality is those are the people that fled to Jesus. They wanted to be around him. Why don't they want to be around us? What have we missed in following Jesus that gives us that disconnect in being what he has called us to be as his ambassadors and as light in this world of darkness? That's what I'm going to talk about. The Christ-centered life and following Jesus Christ. We Christians are good Talking and singing, if we just look at the words we sang just a few moments ago, all of them, those are some pretty powerful, powerful commitments. But it's not just Christians that struggle with this. As you know, I do a lot of work in uh, speaking and writing and worldviews, and one of my favorite websites is the Celebrity Atheist website. Here is a cut from uh, Lance Armstrong, who was asked if he believed in God, was religious. He said, no, of course not. And he went on to say, quite simply, I believed I had a responsibility to be a good person. And that meant fair, honest, hardworking, and honorable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to my community or some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, or a thief, then I believed that should be enough. Almost every positive adjective there, he was living the contrary to that at the very time he said this. How about us? We may not live what we profess, but we will live what we believe. It is inescapable. So let's put it together. Let's look at Jesus, his life. If we're going to follow him, what does that mean? And I want to look at a passage of Scripture at the end of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, if you turn there, I'll have the passage on the screen here as well. But I have just been so mesmerized by the life of Jesus for most of my life. I've ended up beginning to to memorize chapters of what Jesus did and chapters of what he said. And if you want to memorize a couple chapters of what Jesus did, you go to Matthew 8 and 9. You talk about an incredible catalog, a slice of a couple of days of Jesus' ministry, and you will be overwhelmed. Because if Jesus says, follow me, and he's doing this, you're going, whoa, whoa. Here in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, the summary of all that is simply this. Jesus went through all their towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all sicknesses and diseases. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the fields are white with harvest. Pray, literally, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers into 
the harvest. Now, in this short paragraph are three major movements that I just want to talk about in our brief time here. What Jesus did, why he did it, and what we're supposed to do about it, okay? So what did, what did Jesus do? It's very simply stated at the beginning of the, the paragraph. Jesus went about teaching, preaching, and healing. In fact, this is repeated in a lot of parts of the, the Gospels when this, Jesus went about teaching, preaching, and, and healing. And you're probably thinking, oh, whew, man, that lets me off the hook. I can't teach, I can't preach, and I certainly can't heal. So I don't have to do that. Well, guess what? We do. Differently than Jesus did. But he provided the model. I mean, if, if Jesus just came to die for us, we could have just had one sentence. Jesus came and died for our sins and rose from the dead. Trust him, you're done. But all of these stories, and Jesus says, follow me, why are they there? They provide a model of how we are to be salt and light in the world. How Christians are supposed to live and to move in the world in which we live. Here's, here's a summary. Jesus teaches. He taught about true discipleship. He taught about the importance of change and how things were changing under him, fasting and faith. He preaches not only about the gospel of the kingdom, but about the future, forgiveness, authority, faith. He heals. Boy, does he heal. A man with leprosy, a centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, a paralyzed man, a woman bleeding for 12 years, two blind men, a man unable to talk, and then all kinds of miracles from stilling a storm to casting out demons, etc. Wow. So can you teach? Yes, you do all the time. Every time you open your mouth, you are teaching. Parents know that is true. And now there are many times where we look back and say, I can't believe they're saying that. You know, I said that, I don't realize I say it so much. But every time you encourage, every time you criticize, every time you tell a joke or repeat a story to anyone, you're teaching. People listen. That's why the scriptures are so full of examples and admonitions related to what we say. Not only the book of Proverbs, but even in James and places in the New Testament. We're constantly, constantly affirming or denying God by the things that we say. The things that we are teaching. There are some people you like being around because they have a positive spirit in life and you like hearing what they have to say. And there are people you don't want to be around because it's like the lights go out in the room when they come in. I have to remind myself every day to build. That every time I talk with someone, I am called by God to build. It's so easy, easy to tear down. There's enough people doing that, but they're always recruiting. I have a little card that I look at every morning. I'm one of those people that I have to reboot my life every morning, you know, push that reset button, you know, start over. It's very biblical, by the way. We take about cross how often? Daily, right. But on the, on the card, I've got this written. I've got grace toward everyone. God shows me grace, right? Do I deserve it? No. God unconditionally accepts me and loves me as his son, treats me with kindness. If God treats me that way, why can't I not treat everybody else that way, myself? 
And I also have written faith towards God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And there are many times in the day where I'm trying to do it all on my own, you know, trusting God. And then thirdly, biblical wisdom toward everything. God gave us his word for a reason. And I need to hide it in my heart. I need to let that guide the decisions that I make, the perspective that I have in life and the world. But down at the bottom, I've got the word build. The word build. Every conversation, every interaction, somehow or another, I want to build, to encourage, so that they are closer to the Lord after our conversation than when they began. I think about that like when I was in New York. Get in the, the cab. There's this guy from India driving. We talk about Indian food and God. One God. The reality is, of course, that as we teach, we're also called to preach, and that is to share the gospel. Sometimes sharing the gospel is just simply talking about God, opening up the idea that God might really have something in it for a person, that somebody might not realize that there is a God that really loves them. I was uh, doing some consulting in London this past uh, summer with a group of guys uh, and uh, these guys have probably never said the name Jesus Christ in a positive way. And for me to talk with them, these guys are sitting there with their mouths open. And I th- thought I was the biggest idiot, I'm sure, and still do, maybe. But if I think at least positively for a moment, these guys are going to hear somebody talk about Jesus Christ in a positive way. Opportunities are all around us. Healing. Most of the examples of healing that we see in the Scripture are physical healing. But the, word for, the words for healing in the Old Testament many times focus on forgiveness and restoration as well. We just sang, heal my heart and make it clean. How many of you, everybody here I'm sure, you've had words of healing from people spoken into your life when you needed it most? Don't you want to be that kind of person in the lives of others? Healing is not physical, always. In fact, that's usually not the greatest need. In fact, I'm excited just about physical healing, the the opportunities we have for healing around the world. I've got a friend in uh, Kentucky. His goal is to provide the top 50 medications for people around the world, everything just from aspirin to malaria medication and so on, free around the world. The, the, The millions of lives that can be saved. Our students gathered 5,000 pairs of shoes and took them to Liberia, and they said that that's going to extend the lives of those young people by at least 10 years. Helping people dig wells for fresh water. I mean, that's healing in the opportunities to express why we do this as an act of grace in the lives of these individuals. Now, two verses before this, this summary, we've got how people responded to the life of Jesus through these two chapters. In fact, we read in verse 33. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. There's a sense of awe at the presence of God in their midst. But the religious leaders, the ones who knew the word of God, who taught the Word of God, who held the Word of God, the only ones who could, those who tithed, those who were in worship, those who prayed long prayers, 
were so far from the God they said they knew and served. In fact, Jesus said that you are making people twice as fit for hell as you are yourself. And here God shows up in their midst and they don't even recognize him because they're busy in their religious duties and in making sure that everybody else is carrying out their religious duties. What if God showed up in your life, showed up here at fellowship? Would we recognize him? Would he feel comfortable? Would he know us? There are Pharisees, and if you follow Jesus, they criticize him, they will criticize you. And the Pharisees are not just outside the church. The early church got this. They understood the life of Jesus in, in giving and loving and sacrificing. Who was the most important person in the, in the ministry of Jesus? Whoever was in front of him at the moment. For you and for me, what a great pattern, huh? Why has God placed this person in front of you at this moment? And maybe it's somebody you know. Maybe it's somebody you just met. God, how do you want me to serve, to represent you in this moment? The early church got it. At least most of them did. In the early church, the, the Christians developed a reputation that they were the first responders for everything. If there was a need, Christians showed up. If a stranger had no place to stay, go find a Christian. Christians were known as being philazenia, lover of strangers. If there were plagues, and there were many all the way through the Middle Ages, the people ran away. The Christians ran in. Millions died from the plagues. Many of them were Christians who went in to help, to nurse, to care for those who were dying. In fact, Dionysius writes in 260 in the 3rd century, Heedless of danger, they, the Christians, took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected with the disease. When people talked about Christians in those first few centuries, they weren't talking about right-wing fanatics. It was a positive thing. In fact, so much so that many could not even bring themselves to say the name Christian. But Dionysius goes on to talk about the Romans and how the Romans treated themselves during these times of plague. He said, our people, they behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, of the disease they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead. And the Christians would go and pick them up and care for them. Christians looked different. They lived different. And they changed the world. The Emperor Julian, Roman Emperor Julian, as we fast forward another century, hated Christians. In fact, he wouldn't even say the name. He called them the Galileans. He did everything he could to destroy them. In fact, when he died on the battlefield, he shook his fist at heaven and said, Oh, Galilean, you have conquered. He was so distressed by the fact that Christians were caring for people that he tried to set up an empire-wide welfare system. It didn't work. And he goes on to say, 
The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. The early Christians among themselves, they prohibited infanticide. Usually if you had a baby girl, you would leave her to die. Abortion, incest, marital infidelity, and polygamy. Christians had no political power. They had no social influence. They had no financial leverage. But as the Apostle Paul had taught, they considered others as more important than themselves. They said to God, God, what are you doing? We want to help you. Use us. And they became his voice, his hands, his heart. And this didn't stop in the first century. Really fast forward into the 18th century, the late 1700s, when Christianity had its place in England. Christianity was nice and neat. You had your poor, you had your slaves. They lived their lives. The Christians, nice and neat and pristine, led theirs. It changed with a group of individuals called the Clapham Group with people like politician William Wilberforce, playwright Hannah Moore, mathematician William Deltry, India Governor John Shore, Granville Sharp, John Venn, the Venn diagram, his dad. This group realized that Jesus Christ had transformed their lives and they could not just sit by and let culture die around them. They put Christian priorities into practice. Oh, they evangelized. They did mission organizations and so on. But they also worked hard to provide education for the needy and the abandoned children. They cleaned up the abusive prison system. The most well-known efforts, as you know, were to get rid of the slave trade. William Wilberforce was the dandy of Europe, one of the most popular, famous men throughout Europe. He was known as a womanizer. He was brilliant. He was funny. He was clever. He came to know Jesus Christ. He was just as clever. wasn't the womanizer anymore. But he knew that he had to do something. Coming to Jesus Christ just didn't mean he started going to church. He looked at the world around him and broke his heart. Twenty years he worked in Parliament and into the slave trade. And just think recently, uh, when Katrina, Hurricane Katrina hit in the south, Louisville and Mississippi, thousands and thousands of Christian groups showed up. Tens of thousands of them worked. Millions of dollars were given. It's an untold story. Roy Hattersley, who is a, a journalist for the UK Guardian, came and was writing a story, and he's an atheist, and he was pretty impressed by all these Christians everywhere working for people they'd never met before. People didn't know them anything. And he thought it was interesting, he said, that there were no groups from atheist organizations. Just these Christians, he said, they don't seem to mind serving in this way. Okay, very quickly, need to go on. That's what Jesus was doing. And Christians throughout history continue to walk in those steps. So why did Jesus do it? Look at the third line there. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. Compassion. He was moved. Not like, look at all we've done. Look at all the great miracles. All he could see was what still needed to be done. The word compassion means to suffer with in English, and there's a word in Greek, sympatho, which means to suffer with. But the word that is used here is the word for the internal organs. It's an intense internal pain. Jesus looked at the crowds, and it hurt so bad. The word occurs in other times. For example, in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. 
When the Jewish man had been robbed and beaten and left for dead and the Jewish leaders, the holy men walked around him. It was a hated, despised Samaritan that came up and saw him and it hurt. And he sacrificed his time, his money, his effort to care for this man that if he were conscious would not even let the Samaritan touch him. Or Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. When the younger son humiliated his father and family by making him sell his property to give him his inheritance, he goes and wastes it all, needs a place to sleep and a a job, he comes back. And the scripture says that his father saw him a long way off and it hurt, hurt. And he went, he threw his arms around him. He wanted to come back as a slave, he brought him back as a son. By the way, that is, that's your God. So no matter where you are in your spiritual walk, that's how he treats you. Instead of, all right, you better measure up. I told you so. He says, okay, we got things to do. And I want to use you. That is our God. The people were harassed and helpless, the passage says. They were harassed by the religious leaders who constantly made them play the game of of matching up to their religious ideology. They were helpless because they had nowhere else to go. And Jesus was brokenhearted. So thirdly, then, what's our response? Jesus said they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's interesting he didn't say, pray for more shepherds. He changes the figure to a field and says, there's a lot of work to do. The field is white with harvest. Pray for more workers. And workers in the field have all kinds of different jobs, like we in the body of Christ have so many different things to do. Pray, pray for more workers. That's the direct response. But there's the indirect response, of course, is to do what I've done. And we see that repeated over and over again, both in the Gospels and in the Epistles. Jesus has given us a model that every time we open our mouth, every time we act, we are representing Him. Do what I have done. Send workers. Send workers. We pray, and then to do this. In fact, after Jesus said, uh, told the story of the Sermon on the, excuse me, of the uh, Good Samaritan, what did He say? Go and do likewise. One of the few times he says that. Go and, do, go and do this. Go and do this. All right. Let's ask three questions and do two, three, three things, okay? That's how I like to end up. Things I'd like for you to ask. First, what have I done today that only a Christian would do? A Christian could do. Would anybody know that you are a Christian by the way you live? the things you do, doing differently. Now, I'm not saying the things you don't do. I've got a thousand of failures in my life, of stories I could tell you, but let me tell you a, a, a positive one. When my wife and I bought a car about 10 years ago, still got it, by the way. It's pretty cool. Um, the young man, his name was Mike, good-looking guy, mid-20s, sold us the car. He had a lot of time to talk. You know how that is. I got to go talk to the manager back and forth. So um, I told him a little bit about Christ and so on. He was not interested at all, obvious. Pretty rude about it as well, but that's okay. And we got the car. A couple days later, I wrote him a note. 
and uh, you, some of you do this as well, say, Mike, thanks a lot for your service. I really like the car and so on. And uh, I'm praying for you. Let me know if there's anything I can pray for and so on. And send it off. And uh, just one of the things you do. About five and a half, six years later, uh, in the office, one of my assistants comes in and says, Dr. Brown, there's a guy here who says that you might know him. And I said, really? His name is Mike. He said he sold you a car. I said, oh, yeah, it's a you know, place downtown. So I went out, and there's Mike. And I said, well, come on in, you know. And I said, what's up? He said, well, yesterday I got out of prison. I said, ah, that's why you haven't called. <laughs> and, um, but um, uh, he was a drug addict. Didn't know it at the time when we met him. He was then. And uh, he'd spent almost, almost uh, five years. And he said, as I was getting ready to get out, because that was the second time, he said to himself, I have got to turn my life around. And I thought of you. And the thing you said and the note you sent. And I thought, I've got to find him. So what do I do? So I got to spend uh, some time with him there, and then we met for breakfast for the next few months before he moved away. That's cool, isn't it? So what do you do as you're going through life? How can you take the things that you do regularly and, and, and make them so that they're different, so that they're, they're representing Jesus Christ? They're very Christ-centered. It's amazing how simple it is. It's amazing how God uses them. Secondly, how much does the unsaved world hurt me? We have so many things, and it's like an anesthesia. We don't realize how broken we are. And we fail to see the real hurt in the world around us. William Wilberforce, as I mentioned, the parliamentarian, the, the brilliant, brilliant, famous William Wilberforce, his life was transformed when he came to know Jesus. And he said this, he says, if to feel alive to the sufferings of other people is to be a fanatic, I am one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large. Where's your heart? And thirdly, am I praying for God to send people to serve? Am I willing to be used? I mean, seriously, every day. So here's some things to do. We need to start off by saying, God, what are you doing? Where are you working? I want to be there. Remember Hudson Taylor saying, I used to pray and ask God to help me. Now I pray and ask God if I can help him. That's the attitude. That's the perspective. Today I'm going to start praying daily for God to break my heart. We just sang it. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Secondly, I will daily pray to God for God to send people to serve. You've got somebody that you're praying to come to know Jesus Christ. Theologically, I, I don't think we should say, God, please save them. God can do that, but God will not save anybody against their will. So pray for God to send people to share the gospel with them, to, to be a real Christian. I have a long list of celebrities that I pray for every single day to come to Christ. And most of what I pray for, let them see a real Christian today, God, somewhere, somehow, in, in real life or on, on television. And it doesn't have to be that, that station with the lady with the big hair. It can just be any station, you know, people living it up. And for them to see a Christian or to read something in the newspaper, so somehow let the message come to them today, God. And finally, every day, Lord, here am I. That's what you say. Use me. Use me, Lord.
and start looking for opportunities, and you will see them in places you never noticed before. I mean, if you say, God, use me, what is he going to say? Sorry, I'm, we're just, if these don't have any openings. Notice my emphasis on daily. An incredible Christian life is made up of incredible Christian days. A day is a step. A lot of steps is a walk. Throw yourself into this day. Take up your cross daily. His mercies are new every morning. And I learned this truth from uh, my work with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and some other ministries, addiction ministries. And those of you who have been involved with those works, you know that if you're an alcoholic, you never agree to never drink again. You agree what? Not to drink today. It's all you can handle. Tomorrow becomes today, of course. All you can handle is today. You need power from God today. You need to make the next good decision today because you're broken. I was leading an AA retreat in, in Kiev, Ukraine, a few months ago, which is interesting. I all spoke Russian, you know. And there's, but uh, these, these people, they just want to make the next good decision. These are millionaires and guys living on the street. Interesting group. They're all joined by their addiction and their need for God. And, of course, these can, this is a very Christian group, this one was. One guy had the prayer of serenity tattooed in Russian on his arm. And I said, do you read that every day? He said, a hundred times every day. I need it. We are all broken. We need it too. But I said, we've got such an anesthetic environment. We don't realize how broken we really are and how much we need the power of God every day. Today, today, you will never become in the future what you are not becoming today. We decide that. All right, are we up to it? To be men and women of God, Christ-centered, to follow Him. That's what transforms the world for His glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You so much for the truth that You've given to us, the grace that You have given to us that we do not deserve, and yet we, we, we take. Thank You for lavishing it on us that we might live in ways that commend the gospel to a dying world. I pray for this church and for everyone listening to me right now that they might know Jesus Christ and the grace that has come from the cross and then desire to live that out and to share it with others. For your glory, we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you, everyone. Enjoy this day in Christ.